The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday morning at 9.45 or 11.30 a.m. in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. recently released an article about a growing trend in TV watching, and they called it binge TV watching. So, of course, I was interested, and I, uh, I was wanting to know a little bit more. And they said, with the, the change in how we watch TV with things like Netflix, Hulu, or Amazon Prime, some of these uh, live streaming sites where you can watch television shows, it's changed how we watch TV. And I know for me, it's changed. I I think I watch mainly off of Netflix, and now, like, when a commercial comes on, if I'm watching, like, a Dolphins game or something, I don't even know what this is. Why are they interrupting my program now? It's, like, foreign, okay? So, um, but they say it's changed how we handle watching television. So they were doing some interviews of other South Floridians, and they were saying, you know, tell us on how how you watch television. They say, well, what I often do is I'll find a show that I have access to the entire, like an entire season or multiple seasons, and I'll start that show like at night after work or maybe over the weekend. But there's a downside to that because the way they often craft these television shows is that the show ends with this incredible cliffhanger. And before, you'd have to wait till next week to see what happens. But now with Netflix, etc., you can watch it immediately. And so what they've been saying is what happens is you're watching and all of a sudden, this cliffhanger happens. You're like, oh my goodness. All right, let's just watch one more. Okay, we'll watch one more. And you hit play, and you just, I gotta see what happens, okay? And they say that what this turns into, which was very relatable for myself, what this turns into is this binge TV watching, and people are saying, oh, yes, this is part of, you know, I'll come home from work, and I might watch three, four shows in a row from this particular, uh, from this particular show that I've all of a sudden gotten hooked in, and it's this binge TV watching. Um, they're talking to people that says, you know, like on a, a Saturday, I'll, I'll mean to watch just a couple shows, and like 12 episodes later, I realize I've never even emerged from my house into the sunlight, okay? And I, I was thinking about this, and I, this was very relatable for me because um, there was, uh, I, this, I've fallen into this trap before, and, and never, though, as bad as maybe the first time I ever fell into this. It was um, when the first season of 24 came out on DVD. Netflix wasn't there yet or wasn't as popular, and a friend of mine had the entire season, first season of 24 on DVD, and they were like, you've got to watch this. This is so exciting. I'm like, okay. And so I, I put in, and I made the mistake of starting it on a Tuesday night. Friday would have been better, but I started it on Tuesday night, and I put in the first episode. And if you've ever watched the show 24, at the very end, it's like someone's about to like explode the entire world, and then it cuts off the show, like right at the, at the end of that episode. And there are these numbers that just count down. Do you, you know the numbers that I'm talking about if you watch 24? It just goes boop, boop, boop. And you learn to hate those numbers at the end of the show. Okay, and I, I started it on Tuesday. By Thursday, I had watched 24 episodes. Uh, Wednesday, there was, there was a, a stretch of 12 solid hours on Wednesday that started at 4 p.m., okay? And uh, at 4 a.m., we're like, We've, I've got to stop. All right, so... I I have fallen into this TV binge watching before. And here's what caught me about this. 
is the way that TV shows are arranged, they're so exciting, and we get so drawn into some of, this, some of these, these episodes that we're willing to sacrifice things. We're willing to sacrifice sleep. I mean, sleep goes right out the window. We're willing to sacrifice uh, emerging out into the beautiful sunshine state that we live in. I mean, this is where people come down to vacation. I mean, they couldn't imagine, like, coming down here to vacation and staying in a hotel and watching 24 the whole time. No, they want to be out on the beach. They want to enjoy the natural beauty. But we can put that on hold. We can sacrifice actual interaction with real human beings. There's various things that we are willing to sacrifice to get drawn in to this TV show. Now, this is not going to be one of those sermons that's hating on TV, okay? This is not an anti-TV message, although there probably could be a sermon like that, but that's not today, okay? What this series is about is how to study the Bible. And the reason I bring all that up, it's not to, for any reasons of guilt or anything like that, but just kind of a reality check. Because when it comes to something that we prioritize, we will make room for it. When it comes to something that is absolutely so important to our lives, we will sacrifice for it. We'll sacrifice sleep, we'll sacrifice food, we'll sacrifice our social agenda, we'll sacrifice interaction. We will sacrifice for the things that are the most important to us. And what I want to look at this morning is the Scripture and why this is so unbelievably crucial, what an unbelievable treasure, how invaluable it is. And here's why I want to end this series on this note. Because studying the Bible, we've talked about just a basic method. If you're going to study the Bible, there's three basic questions. If you read through a passage in the Bible, if you ask these three simple questions— It will help you. If you just ask, what did it say? What does it mean? And what will I do today? Three simple questions will help you study the Bible. We talked about how studying the Bible is to change our lives. That's the point. It's not to check a box, but to change our lives. We talked about that. Talked about that scripture. The point is saturation. Fill our minds. Surround ourselves with the scripture. But here's the thing. Studying the Bible, it may seem tough. It may even seem intimidating. But it really isn't rocket science. The number one thing that holds us back from studying the Bible, absolutely number one thing, 50% of the whole game, is making it a priority. Is making room for it. Not out of guilt, not out because I feel like I'm supposed to, but having an appreciation for what an unbelievable treasure, how invaluable what we have is. Now we're going to take a look at a passage of scripture. It's in the book of 2 Kings. It's in the Old Testament. It's in the part of the Bible known as the histories. And there's some historical stories that are true historical stories, but they're worded in a way, they're written in a way so that we see truths that God wants us to see. We see how God interacts. We see how people respond. And we learn about God. We learn about these people. We see examples to follow, examples not to follow. And we really end up seeing ourselves in these stories. And we're going to look at a fantastic story in the book of 2 Kings, chapter 22. And as you can imagine, books of 1 Kings and 2 Kings track the history of Israel and Judah by their kings, of course. So we're going to look at 2 Kings, chapter 22. 
and we're going to look at the story of King Josiah. Now, if you had your ESV study Bible, it would give you a little bit of great background on this section, and it would tell you that this is taking place in about 640 B.C., 640 B.C., it's taking place in Judah, um, in, the, in the kingdom of Judah at, the, at, at this time in history. Assyrians are kind of the world power at this time. So this kind of puts it for you in context of history. And we're looking at King Judah. Now look at chapter 22, starting in verse 1. It says this. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adiah of Bozkath. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of David, his father. And he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. Now, this is the basic introduction of the king we're going to be looking at, Josiah. Now, if you're tracking through the book, books of 1 Kings and then 2 Kings, they introduce every king with a similar formula. They'll say, here's king such and such, in this case, Josiah. Here's king Josiah. He was this, he was this years old when he, when he started to reign, if it's relevant. Usually tells you who his mother was, because you know from the previous passage who his father was. So it tells you who his mother was. And then it usually tells you how long they reigned. And then it always tells you whether they were a godly king or an evil king. And same formula. Now, there's two things in this introduction that are very startling if you've been reading through First and Second Kings. The first is, how old was he when he started to reign? Do you remember how old was he? He was eight years old. Now, I don't know if you know any eight-year-olds, but if you put ultimate authority over a kingdom into their hands, that's a little terrifying, Okay. He was eight years old. Now, what does that make you think? Probably he's going to be extremely influenced by the advisors around him. Okay? That's the first thing startling. He was eight years old when he starts as king. What we find, the second thing that's very startling is that it says he was good. He walked uprightly before God, and just like his father David did. He's a direct descendant of David. Several generations. David is like his great, 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 great grandfather. But he walked like David. Now, if you've been reading through First and Second Kings, that is startling. Because you keep reading over and over. You, you finish with one king, oh, he was a disaster. And then you get to the next king, you're like, okay, hopefully this one's better. And, and right in the intro, it just tells you off the bat, yeah, he, he was pretty messed up. He pretty much did everything wrong he possibly could have. And you keep reading that over and over and over again. If you're reading through the story, you're like, man, is there, is there going to be any good kings? And with very few exceptions, it always says he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. But then you get to Josiah, and you kind of feel like he's eight years old. He's probably just going to be influenced by all the advisors around. You're already kind of feeling down. And it says, miraculously, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. That's startling. Now, let me tell you how bad it had gotten in Judah. It gotten so bad, Josiah's predecessors had not just put up uh, idolatrous shrines around in Judah, put up these idolatrous shrines, brought in false gods, put in idols, set up priests for these idols. Some of the surrounding cultures' idols had put them up. But his predecessors, the last couple kings before Josiah, took it a step 
further, they took idols and brought it into God's temple. I remind you how just, when you're reading that through the story, it's just mind-blowing, because remember, this temple is the temple that God instructed Solomon generations before. He says, here's, I want you to construct the temple. And in the very, very inner place of the temple, we're going to call it the Holy of Holies, I want you to put the Ark of the Covenant, and I want you to separate it with a curtain. And only one person, the high priest, is allowed to enter into that inner chamber once a year. And just to warn you, if you mess around with where that is, because my presence is going to be there intensely, if you just nonchalantly walk in there, or if someone else walks in there, or it's the wrong time of year, they're probably just going to die. Like, my holiness will be so powerful, it'll probably just kill them on the spot. And in this holy temple, these kings brought in, these kings of Judah, of God's people, who are supposed to be the light to the world of how to interact with God, brought these idols into the temple. But it's worse. Let me tell you about some of these idols. The way you worship some of these idols, especially up in these high places, is they would have these prostitutes, these temple prostitutes, cult prostitutes, and the way you would worship these idols is to have an encounter with these prostitutes. And they were bringing those into the temple. But it's worse than that. He'd actually brought in mediums and sorcerers to set up tables and set up their vendors as vendors inside the temple. You have people interacting with demonic spirits in the temple. But it's worse than that. One of the idols, one of the local idols, the way you worship this idol is to sacrifice your own children before this idol. And one of the kings, immediately preceding Josiah, actually took their, his child and sacrificed it to this evil pagan god. And this is God's people who's supposed to be the light to the world. It had gotten so bad. How could it have possibly gotten this bad? This is how. Look what he says. Look what it tells us. Look at verse 3. In the 18th year of King Josiah, the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, son of Meshulam, the secretary, to, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may count the money that has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people, and let it be given into the hand of the workmen." who have the oversight of the house of the Lord, and let them give it to the workmen who are at the house of the Lord repairing the house, that is, to the carpenters, to the builders, and to the masons, and let them use it for buying timber and quarried stone to repair the house. But no accounting shall be asked from them for the money that is delivered into their hand, for they deal honestly. So King Josiah, 18 years into his, into his reign, he's 26 years old, 26 years old, he says to his secretary, he says, okay, you know what? We should probably check on how the temple's doing. It's obviously in disrepair. You can tell by this passage, which also is insightful to where they are as a nation. The temple's in disrepair. He's like, we probably should fix it up. Go tell the high priest to count all the money that's been brought in, and let's just do some repairs. And he says, basically, give the money to all of these skilled laborers and just tell them it doesn't matter what you spend. Just get it fixed. Just get it right. Okay, look what happens next. This is pretty shocking. Verse 8. And Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the secretary, watch this, 
I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. And Shaphan, the secretary, came to the king and reported to the king, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan, the secretary, told the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. Did you see what just happened? The high priest counts all the money. He says, all right, let's do some repairs. They're going around and say, okay, wallpaper needs to be repaired over there. And, you know, with these curtains, they look pretty ragged. Let's repair them. And that, that beam needs to be kind of touched up a little bit. And all right, we should probably start cleaning things out. So he goes into some old closet. He's like, okay, these choir robes, we're not even using these anymore. He gives them those. But a bunch of hymnals are collecting dust. And he's rummaging through. He finds, you know, some old Sunday school supplies and moves that aside. And then he finds this book. What's this? The high priest picks it up, dusts it off. What does it say under this thick layer of dust? And he rubs it off and says, Book of the Law. Okay, at this time in history, this is as much of the Bible as they have. The high priest of the temple starts doing some house cleaning and stumbles across a foreign book, the Bible. Is this concerning to anyone here, okay? He takes this book, dusts it off. He's like, oh, wait, I think I heard about this book once. And he goes to the secretary. Hey, um, I think this is what I heard once way back when. It's called The Law. Here, I don't know what you do with it. And the secretary has never, he doesn't even know what it is. You notice he later refers to the king. He says, we found some book. The secretary starts to read through it. There's five books. It's the first five books of our Bible, the law. And he starts to read through it, and he gets a little nervous. Do you notice how he goes back to the king? He's like, hey, king, um, so we were doing repairs, and everything's going great. You know, they're repairing the curtains, and the wallpapers never look so good, and it's looking great. We found this book. There's a little pause. He says, we found this book. I think you need to hear what it says. And he starts reading it to the king. Look at this, verse 10 again. Look at this. Then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, and Akbar, the son of Micaiah, and Shaphan, the secretary, and Isaiah, the king's servant, saying, Go, inquire of the Lord for me, and for the people, and for all Judah, concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book, to do according to all that is written concerning us. Jephon says, you, you need to re- hear this immediately. The king sits down. The secretary starts reading through it. It probably started in Genesis. He's hearing this story about how God, that this world came into existence because there is a creator, creates this world, and it's perfect. This world is perfect. Can you even imagine what that would look like? Harmony between humanity and creation and and, and the environment. Harmony between humanity and the animal kingdom. Can you imagine? 
harmony among all of the human race. No conflict, no hurt, no pain. And even more amazing, he would read that God walked with humanity, that there was harmony between God and man. And then they kept reading through the law, and Josiah would have heard what happened next, is that all of a sudden humanity decided, you know what, let's try it not God's way. I mean, here's the instructions of how God wired this planet, but let's just kind of do things our own way. They disobeyed God, and evil at that moment entered into the planet, entered into humanity, and because God had wired it a certain way, when we broke his laws, things start to short-circuit on this planet. There started to be conflict, hurt, death, murder, saw this planet is just downward spiraling, and he's reading along. This looks like going to be a bad story, but he keeps reading, and he sees that God's not content to just leave the planet how it is. And so he keeps reading, and he sees that God calls out this man named Abraham, and he says, okay, my plan is I'm going to rescue this planet, and I'm going to do it through this people, Israel, specifically through the tribe of Judah. Through them, they are going to be the hope of the world. Through them, I'm going to show them, show the world how to interact with the holy, almighty God and how to rely on him like a father. He watched how God said and brought his people back and said, this is how you're supposed to act. This is how I designed the world to thrive. And this is how I want to function. He says, I want you to worship a whole, this is how you worship a holy God. And he paints this picture in the book of the law. And he says, but beware. He would have kept reading and he would have gotten to the point, Josiah is sitting there and his sweat beads maybe starting to form on his head. And he got to the point where it says, but beware of the false gods in your culture because they're going to seduce you in. And what's going to happen is if you try and deviate from my plan to save the world, if you try and deviate away from that and you start worshiping these made-up false gods, you put up these idols and you bow down to them and you do all the evil, twisted things that the culture around you thinks you should do for this idol, if you start doing that, I am going to take my hand of protection off of you and it's going to go bad because I can't let you mess up my plan to save the world through you. And they get to the end of, of the book of the law, and Josiah has, tears his clothes. And you know what he probably realized? We're on borrowed time. It's amazing he let us last this long. He must have been like, oh, I can't believe it. We've got to just th- go seek the Lord. We've got to come before him, and we've got to repent. We've got to turn to the opposite direction as fast and as hard as we can because he realized they're on borrowed time that God, it's amazing that God has had patience and grace this far with Judah. But you know what Josiah does? If you kept reading, he does what no other king did. He ruthlessly went through the kingdom and tore down every idol. He went to all the high places, tore down all of those idols. He didn't just tear them down. I mean, he just annihilated those sites because he didn't want it to ever be rebuilt. He'd burn it down to dust and then scatter the dust. He went into the temple. He kicked out these sorcerers and mediums. He pulls out these these idols and he throws them away and he just eradicates from the entire country, all the idolatry, and he reinstitutes God's laws, and he's trying to turn the the nation of Judah, the kingdom of God, he's trying to turn it back to God. And if you kept reading, it's beautiful. You see this incredible grace that, that God's people did not deserve. He says, okay, Josiah, I will hold back punishment 
As long as you're alive, Josiah, because you turned around as hard as you could and came back to me, I will hold back judgment as long as you're alive. And you flip over to chapter 24. And you know what happens? Josiah dies, and his son comes and, and begins to reign. And you know what his son does? Puts all the idols back. You know how long his son reigned? Three months. And God says, we're done. I have a plan, and I'm not going to, to save this world, the history of this world, through Judah. And I'm not going to let, I can't let you stop that. I care too much about this plan. See, we read this incredible story. And let's just say we were reading through it on our own time, on our own personal quiet time or devotions, and we're just reading through it. And we decide to start throwing those questions at. And the first question we say, okay, what, what did this say? It tells us this extraordinary story of a nation that's supposed to be the, the hope for the, God's people. They're supposed to be the light to the world. But that things so, got worse and worse and worse. They fell into darker and darker and darker sin. And it says how it happened. The word of God was collecting dust in a corner somewhere. And it was forgotten. The standard of God's truth was forgotten. And slowly, they moved farther and farther and farther away. That's what it's saying. Okay, well, what does this mean? Okay, what does this mean for us? This is saying, church, this is saying something so incredibly powerful for us. It's saying that God's word... His truth that he's preserved for us contained. He spoke through the people that wrote this down. He spoke, breathed out these words through them, through their personality, their culture. He wrote down in all different genres from all different types of people. He wrote down his truth, preserved it throughout history so that we have a stable, unchanging standard of God's truth. And without that standard, what happens is sin becomes normalized. This is the most dangerous thing about sin, about breaking God's commands. It's that most of the time, it feels right. The scariest part about sin is that over time, we're not sinning on purpose. It's usually not, okay, I know this is wrong, but I'm going to do it. Most of what's happened is we've been swept up in this current and where we find ourselves is so far from where God wants us and we're doing what feels right, what seems right to us. This is the most deadly thing about sin. It's that what happens is the idols from our culture seem normal. And God's saying, that's why I've given you this standard of this historical standard of pure truth. And I'm saying, don't go to the right of it. Don't go to the left of it. Anchor your life. Plant yourself right by it, these streams of living water. Plant yourself right by it so you have a standard of God's truth. See, here's what our, our, our culture says. You remember that um, song by uh, Mariah Carey? It's an older song now called Hero. You don't, I don't have to sing it, right? You remember this. You don't want me to sing this song. You remember this song, Hero? There's a hero, comes along. 
No, I'm not going to sing it. Trying to get me to sing it. You don't want me to sing it. Okay. Um, The song Hero by Mariah Carey, if you remember the lyrics. And I'm going to get in so much trouble for my wife for using this. She loves that song. So I'm going to get in trouble. Okay. Um, This song, Hero, think about it. It's a beautiful song, inspiring song. But what's the message? Look inside you and be strong. The message is a hero comes along and the hero is in you. So here's what our culture says. You want to know right and wrong? Look inside. And if it feels right to you, it's right. It says, you want to know what's right? Look inside. But here's the thing. Our culture is saying one thing and meaning another. Because if you watch our culture, if you look inside you and you say, this is right, and the culture disagrees... How are they going to react? They're going to tell you you're nuts. You need to fix yourself. You need to, what they're really saying is not look inside you and find what's true. They're saying, look inside you and conform it to the culture. See, this is what, this is what happens. The scripture so beautifully shows us what happens. We have one standard of truth. It's not inside of us. It's outside of us. It is God's timeless word. And God's saying, don't look inside of you. You got sent on a wrong path. Evil and sin has infected every one of us. Our bent is no longer obeying God, the instructions for how this world should thrive. Our bent is to disobey God. Our bent is selfishness. Our bent is greed. Our bent is looking out for ourselves. If you read the newspapers and you can, you can read some of the, the horrifying things that happen in our world, those things happen because people, it felt right to them. So God's saying, here's what, I'm showing you what happens over time. If I conform what I think is right to the culture, I get farther and farther and farther away from how God intended this planet to thrive. It's, it's not just sin against God. It's things short-circuiting. It's destruction. And he's saying, I've given you the word. It is that pure standard of truth to come back to. It, it's described, it says, it's like a two-edged sword pierces through us. It's, we can even have our shields up when we're reading it, but it pierces through that and gets right to the heart of the matter. It's described, this scripture describes itself, it's like when you're parched in a, in a desert area, it's like rain that always waters. It's described when you're hungry, it's like bread daily for you. It's like meat and milk, depending on where you're at. It, it's described as like priceless gems. This is an invaluable treasure that we have. Do you know, it's literally invaluable. Do you know where you got this? Where this came from? The only reason that we have an English translation of the Bible is because of a a guy by the name of William Tyndale. Let me tell you about this guy. This guy in the 1500s studied the Bible. He studied. He lived in England, studied at Oxford and Cambridge, and was studying the Bible. There was no English translation of the Bible. And as he was studying, he just loved it. He devoured it. His friends said, man, he was studying it day and night. He just he was always talking about it. He loved it. And he started, um, started talking with some of the local priests as he was studying more and more, and he began to get discouraged. Because as he was saying, but this is what the Bible said. Yeah, they say, well, yeah, but this is what our, our tradition says because it had gotten so bad in England. It was actually illegal to translate the Bible into a modern language. 
why, how could it possibly be illegal to translate the Bible into a modern language? Well, I want you to imagine, if you're the priest and no one and all the masses come to, to your service and you're the only one that can tell them what the Bible says and they can't read it for themselves, do you know the power that you have? So Tyndale said, no, my goal, my, I have, my life can have one goal. It's that the little boy who's pushing the plow has a translation of the Bible that he can understand. He gets actually, he has to flee for his life from England. And he faces all kinds of hardships. He translates the New Testament. As he's translating the Old Testament, he gets into a shipwreck and loses all of his copies and has to start over. He translates the New Testament. They're smuggling it in to England. The priests are trying to get copies and buying up copies and burning them. And he keeps, he keeps going and going and going. And they keep saying, you're going to lose your life. They're, they're going to kill you. And, they, and he's fleeing all through Europe, making more and more copies and trying to flood England with copies that they could understand in English. And finally, they got a hold of him. And they drag him back to England as an, older, as an old man by this point, And they tie him to a stake. And they tell him that he should recant. And his only words were a prayer. He says, God... Open the eyes of the king. And they strangle him, and then they light his body on fire. Church, do you realize what we have? Do you realize the treasure that we hold in our hands? Do you realize there's not another culture on earth or in history? that has access to God's perfect, invaluable truth like we do. That's what this passage means and what will we do? Maybe today, we, remember when we talked about the first week, we looked and it said the Bible's a mirror. Remember what it said? It said it, the Bible's like a mirror. And you look in the mirror and you see yourself. And just as it's absurd... I'd be a fool to look in my mirror, see what's wrong with me, and walk away and not fix it. Church, Christian, we would be fools to study these scriptures and learn how absolutely invaluable his truth is and walk away and not prioritize it anymore in our lives. To not say, I'm going to make room in my life for this, I'm going to make room for my family. We, we want to gather with God's people and make it a part of our regular weekly rhythm to hear God's word taught at our, each of their own age, the kids' ministry and the student ministry and hear it together and talk about it in community group. That is going to be a value because we want to saturate our lives. I'm going to set up my own time. I'm going to read through this. I'm going to get to invest in tools so I can read and understand God's truth that's unchanging throughout history, no matter what the trend of culture is back and forth, I can stand on God's truth for how this, how this world is supposed to thrive. How could we walk away from this unbelievable treasure and not change anything in our lives and not decide to plant our lives right next to the stream of living water? You know, it wasn't too long ago that other places in this world, and, and it's still the case in some places, where having their own translation of the Bible is unbelievably rare or illegal. And a, a couple years ago, uh, a few years ago, it was very difficult in places like China 
to get a modern translation of the Bible. Thank the Lord it's changed a little bit in the last couple years. But as, as few, little as 10 years ago, you couldn't get a modern translation. These house churches, underground house churches, couldn't get modern translations of the Bible in China. But so we can enter into this treasure, uh, I want you to see a video of what it was like when a house church opened up some suitcases and received for the first time some Bibles that had been smuggled through the borders. I want you to look at this video. A friend of of mine who's a um, pastor of a Chinese church down here, I asked him to translate what she said at the end, and she said this, these are exactly what we need the most. These brothers and sisters love us. They risk being caught to bring us these. How could we hear this truth, church, and not walk away changed? If you were to read through this great story through the Bible, it's one giant rescue story. How God loves this world so much, he's not going to leave it how, how it is. He had a rescue story, and here's the end of the story, because it ends kind of where we left it was pretty bleak. But what ends up happening a couple hundred years later is there is a Jewish man who was born, and it turns out it wasn't, he was more than just a man. It was God himself entering creation in the form of a man. To the end of the whole story that's, that he's working out, the, the climax of the whole story happens when God says, I am going to come through, Judah. As a Jewish man, Jesus Christ. And, and I am going to pour out, instead of pouring out wrath on God's people, I am going to take all the wrath on myself. And he dies on the cross. And God pours out all the wrath on the Son of God, Jesus and he says, if anyone says, it's, be, it's by Jesus that I'm saved, by the death and then the resurrection of Jesus that I'm saved, he says, I'll pour out all the wrath that you and I deserve. He says, I'll pour all that wrath on Jesus so you can be washed clean. You can engage that story. That can be your story this morning. If maybe you're in the place you say, look, I, I know I'm far from God. I, I know that I'm, things are not right. I, I know that, that he must be mad at me. Understand the story. Is he loves you. He's pursuing you. And he's trying to tell you, I took all of the anger and wrath on, placed it on Jesus. I've got nothing left for you but love and forgiveness. You just need to accept that this morning. I want to give you an opportunity. Would you just bow your heads and close your eyes this morning? If you want to 
accept that free gift of salvation this morning, the forgiveness of sins by the death of Jesus. You can do that right now. And I just want to lead you in a prayer. Just pray this between you and God. Make these words yours. Say, God, thank you that you have an incredible story to save humanity. And that includes me. Thank you for not pouring out on me the wrath that I deserve, the punishment that I deserve, but pouring that on Jesus instead. I receive Jesus as my Savior. Thank you for loving me and forgiving me. I want to follow you with my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak with somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.